2022. Not 2020, although some of you feel like we keep doing 2020 over and over and over. It's like Groundhog Day. 2022. You know, it's funny when you go online and you surf around for these funny little memes, these pictures with these these messages, a lot about surviving 2021 and the fact that it wasn't exactly the panacea that we thought it was going to be after 2020. There was so much expectation that once the calendar flipped, everything was going to be great and we just kind of maybe survived. And then you feel like, it's over, it's done. It's a little bit like Frodo at the end, you finally thrown the ring of fire into Mount Doom and you're like, it's going to get all better, but brace yourself, as Boromir, is it Boromir or Faramir, I can't remember, uh, says for 2022. And some of you maybe don't have the same optimism for 2022 as you had for 2021. You're like, fool me once. Uh -uh -uh." But I do believe that God wants to meet us in 2022. I think there there are reasons to be optimistic about this next year. And not just because I'm optimistic about everything. If you know me, you know, I will say there's a big black cloud, but there's a little silver lining. Do you see that little part? I'm sure that there's, there's got to be a rainbow in here somewhere. You can borrow some of my optimism, some of my faith. Why am I optimistic? I'm going to approach this next year in two ways. I want to share them with you uh, on the screen here. Uh, I'm picturing myself... Um, just kind of surfing on the Bible, if you will, because I don't know what's true anymore. Just like Pontius Pilate says, what is truth in front of Jesus? I think a lot of us are asking that, what is truth? I don't even know what news to believe anymore. I don't even know which of my friends to believe anymore at this point. But what I know is that the word of God, it will stand forever. It is always true. So, Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I want next year to be the year of the Bible for me. I know that we supposedly did that like in 1984, and we did it like again in 2020 or something like that. We have the year of the Bible. Next year is going to be the year of the Bible for me. I just got this app from one of our pastoral staff who gifted me this little gift card for this app to listen to the Bible. Now, I think you can listen to it for free. There's things that are free. But this is kind of us, like, listen to the Bible in special ways with special people talking and things like that. And I loaded it up and listened to a couple chapters yesterday. I'm like, man, this is going to be such a great way for me to have the year of the Bible next year. Because I do like reading, but I think that there's something about listening. We talked about hearing. Faith comes from hearing. So, I'm planning on listening to the whole Bible all the way through next year, and probably I'll get that done in the first quarter, because it doesn't actually take as long as you would think. So it's going to be the year of the Bible, but the other thing, the other piece of the puzzle, if you will, for me, is I really know that I need to hear God's voice. Because I get so confused. I don't know if you're with me. I get so confused on all of these things coming at me. And they're, they're competing. And they can't all be true at the same time. And I don't know exactly what to do next. But I know that if I hear God's voice, nothing else will matter. So I want this to be the year of the Bible, 2022. But I also want it to be the year where I really hear God's voice afresh and anew. And part of the way that I'm going to do that is by establishing more godly rhythms, more healthy rhythms. So I'm creating space 
to be able to receive rest for my soul, even to work out of a place of rest, is that possible? I believe the answer is yes. And that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about this morning is rest, restoring your soul. Because if you're like me, you come through Christmas Day and you just feel like you like you 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 came across the finish line. You're like, whoa, I didn't have any thought about what's next. I mean, I got to last night, we were eating at my folks' house, having a little bit of stew, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I have to preach tomorrow morning. <laughs> Fortunately, I had done my work beforehand, and I prepared this week on Thursday, but Thursday was a long time ago. I mean, we had a whole holiday since then. And it's easy to just feel like, wait, I didn't even think about what's next, and that's why I want to talk a little bit about what's next What's next for you? What's next for me? How are we going to approach our relationship with Jesus? How is it going to be different this year so we don't have another Groundhog Day type of year like we have for the last couple years? So I want to open up God's hymn book of perspective this morning. It's his hymn book of perspective to bring you into the virtual temple of God. It was written by exi- for exiles... As they were away from Israel, they had this, they couldn't go to the physical temple, but they could actually get in God's presence by looking at God's hymn book, and we call it the Psalms. So we're going to pause this morning and look at two verses from the Psalms, only two, only two. But I also have a couple little videos to share with you so that we can look at the Psalms a little bit differently, and maybe it could be another tool in your toolbox, that as you have the year of the Bible next year, And you learn to hear God's voice in new ways. And we'll be talking all about that next year. That this could be a real tool for you in your toolbox. So, in these uncertain days, this is what I love to turn to for perspective. And the Psalms always get me into a place of the presence of God. So, I want to show just a little video from the Bible Project, guys. They do such a great job of summing up this beautiful book and how to read the Psalms. Because as I'm learning, actually brand new to me, the Psalms are much deeper and richer and divinely ordered than I even imagined. Take a look. We've been talking about poetry in the Bible, how biblical poets love design and masterfully use metaphor and symbolism. These poems invite us into an experience to ponder ideas slowly and from many angles. And the largest collection of poetry in the Bible is the book of Psalms. So that's what we're going to look at here. Now, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history. Yeah, poems were written by Israelites, sages, kings, and prophets. Some poems were sung by choirs in the Jerusalem temple, while others were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. And I'm familiar with books of poetry, a large collection of the greatest poems in one place, and I can read through and pick my favorites. But the Book of Psalms isn't that kind of collection. Here, each poem has been expertly crafted and then placed where it is for a reason, to create a storyline from the book's beginning to its end. The Psalms poetically retell the entire biblical story, and they invite you into a literary temple. A literary temple? Yeah, so the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem were where ancient Israelites went to meet with God. 
When you arrived, you would see art and imagery everywhere. You'd see priests performing rituals, you'd hear songs and prayers, all of it symbolically proclaiming that your God rules the world from this mountain and you're in his living room. So the temple was a place to be in God's presence and also to immerse yourself in the story of God's kingdom. Exactly. And so try to imagine how traumatic it was when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, plundered and burned the temple, and then took many Israelites into exile. Yeah, where can they go now to meet with God, to sing their story and say their prayers? That's where the book of Psalms comes in. It's a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God and to hear the entire biblical story of God's kingdom sung back to you in poetry. Cool, but how does the Psalms do it? Let's start with the book's design. There are 150 poems broken up into five clear sections. At the beginning, there's been placed a short introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, which lay out the main themes of the whole book by reviewing the biblical storyline. Okay. Psalm 1 looks back to the Garden of Eden and its river of life. Yeah, God placed humanity in a garden temple. And here, humans decide to define good and evil on their own terms and so are exiled from the garden. But the first psalm paints a portrait of hope about an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, which is called Torah or instruction. This person is like the tree of life in the garden temple. They eternally blossom because they're planted in the river of God's life. Yeah, that's beautiful, but who's it supposed to be? Well, remember that story in Genesis? After humanity's foolish rebellion, God made a promise. Oh right, a future human, the seed of the woman who would come and defeat evil and restore the world. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. He's called the Son of God and the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice on human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. So Psalms 1 and 2 introduce all these main themes. Yes, and then the book develops those themes through the five sections. The first two explore the complicated story of David and his royal family. The third section focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. But then the fourth and fifth sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Then the book ends with a five-part conclusion, praising God for his faithfulness. Cool. Now, nearly half of the Psalms are connected to one guy, King David, who God chose to rule Israel. Yes, David's story is really important in this book. He experienced many times of hardship, but he trusted God with radical faith. And in these poems, David shares his fears, confesses his failures, and offers thanks to his Redeemer. And he's constantly speaking of a deep longing to be in God's presence in the temple. But wait, David lived before the temple was even built. Exactly. This portrait of David, hoping and praying for God's kingdom and a future temple, it resembles the hopes of the later generations of the exiles. And so David's prayers could become theirs as well. David's like a prayer coach, giving us words for how to pray and how to discover God's presence in good times and bad. Exactly. There are 73 poems connected to David, but most of the rest come from later generations of biblical poets, and they have learned to pray and hope like David. And so the end result is the Book of Psalms, designed as a virtual temple for all generations of God's people. This isn't a kind of book you just read once and put down. No, it's designed for a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. These prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own. They're poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world as they hope for the coming Messiah and the kingdom of God.
So, psalms are poems for exiles. I feel like an exile in this world. I don't know about you. I, don't, I know I don't belong to this world. I belong to a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And yet the Psalms also give us some coaching. I love this analogy that Tim and John give us of this, this prayer coach, that David is like a prayer coach for us, trying to figure out in the good and the bad how we respond. And the Psalms give us permission and some coaching on that. That's beautiful. Now, one of the most well-known Psalms is Psalm 23. You've probably heard it before. It goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters, and he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and, I will say, mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heard many stories of soldiers in wars quoting this as they walk in the battle. Certainly, I've quoted this scripture hundreds of times at memorial services and gravesides. It's a well-known, beautiful passage, and the more I read it, the more I love it. And because it's God's word, there's always more. So what if we just took two verses this morning, two, two and a half, let's say, And we just applied that to where we are right now in the end of 2021, moving into 2022, looking at next year being the year of the Bible and hearing hearing God's voice and being led by him and realizing that he actually has a place of rest for us. But it's not the kind of rest that you're picturing. It's maybe not like the picture behind me on the screen. That's not you and I smiling. There's a different reality to our life. And yet, I think this psalm gives us hope that we can rest in God's abundant life. That life to the fullest that Jesus says he comes to give us. So, Psalm 23. It's originally attributed to David who grew up as a shepherd, as a shepherd boy. He knows a lot about shepherding. He shepherded around that Bethlehem area in that Judean wilderness. And that kind of moves into the Negev desert. It's all very dry. And God is our, called our shepherd in the Old Testament. Just one place, Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Other places it talks about that, but there's one place. Shepherds are also referred to as leaders, or leaders are shepherds. So Israel's leaders, kings, and others were given this shepherding motif. In Jeremiah 3.15, it says, God says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Sounds a lot like David, who was called a man after God's own heart. And that there's a way that God has for leaders, and they look different. In fact, Jesus even talks about um, 
not lording your authority over others like the Gentiles do. But there's a different kind of leadership. There's a servant leadership. There is the, the one who wants to be first will be last. The last shall be first, he says. It's all about how low you can get in serving and loving and giving your life away. This is what Jesus lives and he shows us, he models what it looks like. And of course, Jesus is that third one who is referred to, he refers to himself as the good shepherd. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That passage talks all about leading the sheep out to pasture. It's a beautiful throwback, a looking backwards at Psalm 23. So the image of God that gets carried forward from the Old Testament, God is referred to in a lot of analogies. He's our rock, he's our redeemer, he's, he's our strong tower. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are still true about God into the future. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus says. Malachi, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. So he's always going to be those things. But the one analogy that gets pulled into the New Testament that Jesus uses is that of shepherding. And that's why when he looks, uh, I think it's in Matthew 9, where he looks at the people and he has compassion on them because he's like a, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. You can imagine him standing there just weeping as his disciples are like, Jesus, what's up with you? You thinking about something sad? Did your dog die? He's just seeing us as those who are harmless and won't live without a shepherd. Sheep do not live without care. They are not so smart. So when we read this verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. I'll have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is what we imagine this picture Oh, there's the shepherd. He's just chilling. He's got a dog at his side. The dog is friendly. The sheep are all, they're just in belly high alfalfa. They're just so happy. It's just easy. We think, yeah, God's going to lead me to a place like that. Well, eventually in heaven, for sure, it's going to look like that. Or better, probably. He's going to lead me to a place so incredible. That's why I signed up to be with Jesus, because he's going to make everything easy. I can flop down, have all the food that I need right here. In this picture, hey. Has that been your experience in following Jesus? Jesus said, just come and follow me and just flop down and I will give you all the food you, you, you want. It hasn't been my experience. And maybe for you, you're like, yeah, I'm praying that someday I'm going to get there. Because God's going to someday take me to that place. He's going to make everything better. Everything I need and want will all be just right around me. You don't have to work. I'll just lay around eating all day. Sounds like the holidays. And perhaps you're frustrated because you don't feel like God's come through in your life like this. You feel like he's promised you this kind of lifestyle and it has just, it doesn't seem to be working for you. The thinking that God wants us to be pain-free at all times and life to be easy is what many call a prosperity doctrine. And we are not promised that. We are not promised that life will be rich and carefree. In fact, Jesus says, if you, they hated me, they're going to hate you. You're going to have troubles in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
I would submit to you that actually when you follow Jesus, a lot of things get harder, not easier. You certainly are going counterculture if you're really following Jesus. So are you ready to read this, these verses for how they were really intended? Because I believe that the author, David, had some things in mind. And some of them have to do with the geography of the land, where he was, where he was shepherding. Let's start by describing the green pastures. They don't look like that, they look like that. Those are green pastures that David would have had in mind. In Israel, the farmland is so scarce, that flatland is so scarce, they wouldn't be grazing the sheep and the goats on the flatlands. They would find pasture, and they still do, in the Judean wilderness and the Negev, in the hills that look like this. And yes, you would describe this as a desert. Three months out of the year, it rains in this place, and there props up lots of green grass at that point. But the rest of the nine months, there still can be green pastures here. What are these green pastures that are being described? Because this shepherd, this good shepherd, Jesus, and in Psalm 23, this shepherd, God, who leads his people out, causes us to settle down. That's what the word says, to settle down in green pastures. They're, we're being led out to find food. So let me take... Take a look at this next picture, these two next pictures. There's your green pastures. Do you see them? Because the humidity and the moisture from the Mediterranean Sea blows in in the afternoon and the evening. And it's just enough moisture that it begins to gather on the edges of the rocks and it springs up these little green sprouts next to the rocks. That is your green pasture. That is not what you imagined when you read this or heard it at the last memorial service. You're thinking belly deep alfalfa. I got everything coming to me. It's all good. We had no problems. But the good shepherd knows how to lead the sheep to these places where these green pastures are. And as the shepherd leads, the sheep would bend down and grab that mouthful of grass, that little tuft, and would walk another five, ten minutes and chew, chew, chew. And then come to another one and bite. And trusting the shepherd every step of the way. Knowing that the good shepherd is going to lead that sheep into green pastures. Trusting the shepherd is a faith walk. Minute by minute. Not day by day, not year by year. Minute by minute. To be led into green pastures. A flock would graze, or still does, graze about an area of about five square miles. Why? So that they don't overgraze that. And that all doesn't get pulled out so then it doesn't sprout back up. The sheep are eating what they need. They may not be getting what they want. They may want belly deep alfalfa, but they're getting what they need. The promise of the good shepherd to us is that he will make sure we are provided for. His grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness, the New Testament says. He's not promising an all-you-can-eat buffet every time that you're hungry. He does promise us that he will never leave us or forsake us, and he'll always be leading us into green pastures. 
So our good shepherd will provide what we need. That's one of the reasons why we can live at peace. We talked about peace last week. If you missed the message, I encourage you to catch it. Um, Warning, if you ever preach on peace like I did, just know that your peace will be assaulted by the enemy in in the next six days. And that's been exactly what I've been doing. I'm contending for our peace at our house. And perhaps you are as well. But that's what it looks like to live in the world. That's why this message is coming out of my heart this morning. So a good shepherd, a savvy shepherd, who knows where all the green pastures are, will be calculated. They are good leaders. Now there's all sorts of dangers that the shepherd has to anticipate and steer clear of as he's leading you or I or the sheep into green pastures. You see, because there's cliffs you can fall off of that are extremely dangerous. There are wild animals like wolves and scorpions. It used to be that there were lions and bears in the land and jaguars. But then you'd also have drought, of course, the lack of food and the lack of water. But also flash floods, which is the number one killer in the desert. I watched some scary videos from Israel of flash floods. And actually, when we were there quite a few years ago, we were driving up from Aqaba in the south, and we were coming up around the Dead Sea, and this torrent, and it was raining, this torrent of water was just flowing out. It was brown and just crazy. In fact, you kind of see a picture right there of what it looks like when it's a flash flood. It's so dangerous. And sometimes it will rain in the mountains, and this flash flood will be coming from a long ways away. The shepherd has to be savvy and understand if you're in a wadi, you got to be aware that a wall of water could come and destroy your, take out your completely, your flock. So the good shepherd is working all the time. He's not lazy. He's not laying around. He never sleeps or slumbers. And Jesus is actively working in that way to protect us, to lead us not into the calamity, but into places where we're taken care of. So let's look at our verse again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he restores my soul. So he makes me lie down in green pastures. It literally is to settle in. He's going to allow you to settle into those places. And then this idea of going beside quiet waters. It's not so you can have a great view. The shepherd constructed his whole day around where he was going to find access to water. And the shepherd knows that the the sheep won't drink water if it's moving. Now, if I would want to have, I would find water that's moving, right? Give me a stream that's going and then maybe something that would make sure that I purify it so I don't get sick. But the sheep would not drink out of a moving, moving water. He would have to be very creative to find still water for the sheep. He's orienting his whole day around making sure that they get to water at the right times. So the shepherd has to know when the flash flood waters that are dangerous are finished and the pools that are left behind are safe to approach. Literally, this means he leads me beside waters of rest. You feel like you need rest this morning? 
And then what does it look like for us to orient our day, like the shepherd, our life, our day around times of rest? The young moms are like, yeah, how do you do that? Give, give me the secret. What's the silver bullet? The couples that have little kids are like, we haven't been on a date night in so long. What does that look like? The busy executives are like, yeah, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. There's too many sales to make. There's too many things. I got to keep my business going. The students are like, do you know how many units I'm carrying right now? I mean, I was, but then I'm going to again. The retired people are like, they said it was going to be really slow when I retired, but it's been really, really fast. I think I need a break from my retirement. We all have reasons why life feels like it's moving too fast. But I believe that there are anchor points in each of our days that if we're willing to choose into rest, if we're, cho- if we're willing to stop, then I think that we will find rest for our souls. I don't think we're always supposed to be perpetually moving. Now, I have a lot of energy. But I'm learning that I will have much more energy if I take times to make sure that I'm rested. Now, what would it look like for you to orient your day with some anchor points of rest? Let me give you a couple ideas. What about getting up 15 minutes earlier? Only 15. Give them 15. 15 minutes earlier, just to spend a little bit of time with God. Or taking a run or a walk. Or taking a break at work. Most of you probably get those legally, right? What do you do with your break? Check your Instagram. What if you just rested? your time driving? How distracted are you when you're driving? I'm learning to try to find peace in driving. And this time of year, that's really difficult. That I turn the radio off and I just have it be quiet. You don't have to be hyper-spiritual, by the way. You don't have to pull out your Greek Bible and study all the original words. You can just be with Jesus and say, Jesus, what... What do you want to give me right now? I'm just here to receive. Or for me, oftentimes it's before I go to bed. That's when I was listening to my audio Bible stuff. Listening is a whole lot easier than reading. You just close your eyes, begin, just picture what's happening. But what would it look like for you to begin to orient your day around rest? Now, this is not a pep talk for time management Although I can guarantee you in the next six weeks, we will talk a lot about how you spend your time and how you choose to spend your time because you are empowered. You're an overcomer. If you're a Jesus follower, take heart for Jesus. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Jesus says, I've, I've overcome the world. There's a lot of reason to have hope. You're not a victim. You're a victor. 
But are you going to choose? You've got a lot of power. You have a lot of ability to decide how you're going to spend your time. But will you end up just doing this and miss those times for your soul to be rejuvenated? The promise is this. It's in Psalm 23. God will restore our soul. That's good news for us today. Literally, the words mean he is restoring currently our souls. And as I did a deep dive on the Hebrew word and I looked at the different, the different forms of this word, there are other places where it's used. It means to return what has been taken. I'm thinking about the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you would have life and life to the fullest. I believe that God wants to restore the life that's been stolen by the world, by the devil, even by our own bad decisions. He wants to restore that. He wants to restore our soul. So are there ways that we can partner with God in having our souls restored? Yeah. And that's why we're going to spend the next six or so weeks talking about these things. Finding and keeping godly rhythms where we can receive the, what God has for us, where we could begin to live into that abundant life. And if you're looking for those new disciplines, we're going to provide a few things for you. One is we're going to run our spiritual boot camp again in February, and we'll talk a lot more about this. But if you want to just be bold and sign up, there is a link on our website. Now it's activated, and you can go and sign up. And we'll give you a coach, have a coach meet with you once a week for four weeks, give you daily Bible studies, it's just a few verses to read and think about. It would be a way that you could begin to get those anchor points by having something to do. As we close today, I want to show you another little video from our friends at the Bible Project. It's highlighting an, another psalm, one of those last five psalms that get us to praise God. Because as we're moving into 2022, what if we said, yes, we're going to be people of the Bible. Yes, we're going to be people who hear his voice, but our lips are going to constantly be praising him. Our, our lips will be constantly thanking him. And that should be our attitude. And so um, I'm going to have you watch this little video. And then after that, I'll close this in prayer. Take a look. Praise the name of Yahweh, for he has lifted up the horn of his people. Okay, so what's the deal with this horn, and why is God lifting it up? Great questions. These words come from the climactic conclusion of Psalm 148 in the Bible. Let's check it out. First, let's get our bearings. The Psalm scroll is a large collection of poems in the Hebrew Bible. There are 150 poems, or what we call Psalms, which are arranged to tell a story. The Psalms tell a story? Yeah, it begins with the promise of a coming king who will bring victory for Israel. And it continues to tell the story of how God rescues David from his affliction and raises him up as king. But then Israel falls to enemy nations and the people are left without a king and without a home. So they need a king greater than David. Right. And so the Psalms then explore how Israel renews their trust in Yahweh as their king and that he will bring about his kingdom through a future messianic king from the line of David. Great. The story of the Psalms. Now, the last five poems form the conclusion to the entire story, and they're all praise songs. And this is where we find Psalm 148, right in the middle of these final five poems. 
Psalm 148, like all these five poems, begins and ends in the same way. Praise Yah. Praise Yah. That must be short for Yahweh, the name that God revealed to Moses. Right. And this line is usually translated, praise the Lord. But in Hebrew, it's hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sounds familiar, right? Now today, when people sing the word hallelujah, they usually use it as a way to praise God. Hallelujah. But in Hebrew, hallelujah is not something you say to God. It's something you say to other people when you invite them to praise God. So hallelujah means, hey, you over there, you should praise the Lord. Exactly. Psalm 148 is a call for all the creatures in two realms to praise Yahweh, the realm of the sky and the realm of the land and everything that fills them. The sky and the land. That sounds like the opening line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the sky and the land. Exactly. This psalm is summoning the entire cosmos and everything in it to praise their creator. It begins with a call to the sky. Praise Yahweh from the skies. Praise him in the heights. And who is in the sky? Praise him all his messengers. That's the word often translated angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him the sun and the moon. Praise him stars of light. Praise him skies of skies and the waters that are above the skies. Notice how the outer lines describe the spaces of the sky realm. The skies above. And they surround the inhabitants of the sky in the middle. Ah yes, the messengers and hosts, sun and moon and stars. And then we're told why the skies should praise Yahweh. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. A decree he gave, and it will not pass. This is about the pathways of the stars, which don't change. Every night they dance the same dance, all by God's command. Now, after this, the second realm is called to praise Yahweh, everything below the skies. Praise Yahweh from the land. And we get a list of things on the land that, while terrifying, are ultimately under God's authority. Sea monsters and deep, fire and hail, snow and smoke, stormy wind doing his word. So wait, these dangerous chaos creatures are following God's command? Well, remember that in Genesis 1, the pre-creation state is depicted as a dark, stormy ocean. And as God creates light, he doesn't get rid of the darkness. Rather, he contains it and separates it from the light. In the same way, God doesn't eliminate the stormy ocean or the monsters in it, but he does confine them to the realm of the sea. In the Bible, chaos and disorder are limited and kept at bay by God's powerful word. And because God is so much greater, even they are summoned to praise him. Got it. Now the next things called to praise Yahweh are mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. But how does a tree praise God? Yeah, God designed trees to stand tall and grow, to reproduce and bear fruit. When creation, even a tree, fulfills its purpose, it's an act of praise and worship. Praise Yahweh, wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and winged birds. We should recognize this list from Genesis chapter 1. And finally, kings of the land and all peoples, princes and all the judges of the land, young men and also young women, elders with children. In other words, every kind of human, from the powerful to the weak, old and young, from every nation, everyone on the land is called to praise. And just like there was a reason given for the sky praise, now we get a reason for why the land should praise Yahweh. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for exalted is his name alone, his majesty above the land and the skies. He has lifted up the horn of his people, the praise of all his loyal ones, of Israel, a people near to him. So we finally got here, the horn lifted up by God. What is this all about? 
This is an image of a bull lifting up its horns after winning a battle. The raised horn is a common biblical symbol of victory, especially of being rescued from oppression. Now, in this psalm, notice whose horn is being exalted. The people of Israel. But what victory is God bringing about for them? This is where we need to connect Psalm 148 to the larger biblical story. It begins in Genesis with God giving royal power to all humanity. But humans mess that all up. So God chooses one family, the Israelites, and promises that he'll rescue all humanity through them. But the rest of the Torah and the prophets show Israel surrounded by enemies on the outside and on the inside. They're corrupted by injustice and violence themselves. And so to bring victory to the whole world, God promises to first bring victory for them. To lift up their horn. Right. And remember, the Psalms tell the story of God's promise to raise up a king who will bring victory to Israel and rescue the world. And that's a great reason for praise. It is. Since all creation is going to be rescued by this king, it only makes sense that the land and the skies and everything in them are summoned to praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. So let's stand. Prayer folks, if you'd come down forward, we're going to open the altar for prayer here in a moment. Jesus, I am thankful that you are our good shepherd. You know how to lead us into green pastures. You know how to lead us beside quiet waters and restore our souls. Lord, we want to partner with you and not work against you. We want to step into spaces where we are orienting our day around rest and receiving from you. Lord, help us not to make it too complicated. Help us just to learn new rhythms that would help us to receive what you have for us every single day. Thank you, Lord. You give us enough grace for today. And you say tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. And so we choose into this this day. We choose to be present in this day. And we want to receive everything from you, the rest and the words and the direction that you have for us. May our lips be filled with your praise, God. As we finish this year, fill our mouths with stories of your goodness, testimonies of your faithfulness. Pray for our family meeting here in the dome this morning, but also far and wide on the stream. You would bless each of us with spaces and opportunities to be able to step into your rest. Thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, Jesus. And so now may this new evening of rest repair the wear of time, restore your vision of a deeper light, heal the wounds of disappointments, and restore youth of heart for the adventure that awaits you tomorrow. And the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next year.